For decades, buying a silencer has been difficult. But in 2005, Silencer Central set out to simplify the suppressor buying process. So whether you're planning your next hunt or putting together a range day, you'll enjoy every shot you take with Silencer Central, straight to your front door. All right. Let's do it. Well, damn, dude, we did it. We went duck hunting. It was awesome, man. I appreciate, like, man, I, it's hard because there's so much that took place and it's, it was almost overwhelming in a sense because it happened so fast yeah but but also when we came off when we get there at 10 yep when we got done two ish almost three i couldn't believe how fast the time went yeah because i mean we from the moment we got in the blind we actually i rushed everybody in the blind right yeah yeah from the moment we got in the blind it was birds flying it was crazy. Because cause we had one flock show up while we're kind of, you know, we're piddling around, right? Like digging around in our bags and like getting kind of situated. And it's like, nope. we And it was, dude, it was hot from the start. It was, man. I, I you know, I want like selfishly the idea of me getting into duck hunting was inspired by um, kind of what you already preach conservation, independent self-reliance. Yeah. And when I reached out, I had reached out to a couple guys in the industry and, and said, Hey, who's the guy? And it was like, Sean Weaver's the guy. Like he, that's it. And it wasn't even like there was like a second and third or like hit this dude up. And then if he don't work, hit this dude up. It was like, there's only one dude who's, who, who knows this <laughs> world. And it was you, uh, for the audience and, and people who are listening, um, in the context of, you know, being a duck expert, can you give us a background of your, your like upbringing and yeah, how you totally. got into it? Yeah, man. I, so I started going with my dad, you know, which looking back on it and like having met a lot of adult onset hunters in life, even yourself, right? Like yeah. this is your first duck hunt. Yeah. Um, having met so many adult onset hunters now and brought so many people on their first duck hunts now. I realized how freaking lucky I was to have a dad that, like, from the age of nine was taking me out there to duck hunt, you know? So awesome. And shot my first <clears throat> shot my first duck at 12. And, you know, in high school, my, we had a duck boat, like, similar to the duck boat we were on today. And my dad let my best friend and I take that all over hunting. Mm. Like, even if he couldn't go, even if he was working— I was like, well, go ahead. And he just kind of gave us free reins. You know, it meant we weren't boozing and <laughs> whatever yeah. else, right? We were out yeah. duck hunting. So it was a win-win for a parent. And it, he gave us the freedom to just run hog wild with duck hunting. And, I mean, we were traveling to other states by the time we graduated high school to go duck hunting. And I was, you know, I was just ate up with it. When I was 13, I, I got to go on a hunt that, was you know big flocks of ducks like today right and yeah and mallards from the heavens just sucking all the way down to the decoys shooting them right fluttering over the decoys just like our hunt today i hope the video does that justice how yeah how those big flocks were just right there yeah um and that like gave me the bug and dude i have <laughs> i haven't been able to scratch that itch 
enough since. Like it's just been the thing that's consumed me for for years. You know, I went to I went to college at South Dakota State University because the duck hunting there was so good. I was a hunting guide in college. I started my own creative agency, like with the intention of being the best damn waterfowl film crew out there. Mm. Like it's just been my it's been my thing. So Yeah, you you have a knack. I, I could tell you had a knack for it and didn't realize that you had experience as a photographer, as a producer, all mm-hmm. these different things. Um, what are some of the highlights of that experience and how did that kind of how did that benefit you as a as a dunk hunter? Yeah, man, I I would say that for I mean, you've seen it, right? Like there's there's hunting and then there's filming. Yes. There are different things. Different things, They're yeah. not the same thing. <laughs> They're not. Not at all. <laughs> and we actually hunted today, which is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and hunting and filming are just not always in sync together. Yeah. And Well, you um, knew how to control that. That's why I like yeah. that's what I appreciate because I wouldn't have known how to position that or do that. But mm-hmm. you were putting him like we had Phil Kraft's media crew out there, uh Julian and Jose. Mm-hmm. And you are directing them. And I'm like, oh, we could actually hunt and we're being filmed without yeah. impeding. Them. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that's it right there. Like that's the best way to put it is we um, – having experience as a producer, you know, I've, I've – like not just being a duck hunter, but I've produced a lot of TV Um you know, well over a hundred episodes of stuff. Uh, and what that taught me is how to like step back and see the whole picture and the whole mm. storyline and the whole, and also the things you appreciate about yeah. the hunt and the things you appreciate as a duck hunter while you're out there. And I think that, um, I think that being a producer and, and trying to see storyline, mm trying to see how to tell a story well, how to write the story while you're out there, um, actually made me, as a duck hunter, a more satisfied, a more, uh, maybe just a little bit more nostalgic. Like, uh, maybe not quite so kill-hungry, maybe not quite so all about, like, let's put a bunch of ducks on straps all the time. You know, when I was a hunting guide, that's the mission. Right, the, like what your goal is as a hunting guide is to put a bunch of ducks on the ground for your clients. Yeah, and you kind of lose the respect for like the whole process as much. Mm-hmm. But then when you get back to the storytelling side, it, it goes the other way, right? It's like find the pleasure in the little things becomes yeah. part of like what you see as a a storyteller and a producer. And so, um, I think it's made me just a more fulfilled duck hunter i guess because like today when i was guiding i would have been like ah today's a fine day like nothing great like Mm -hmm. i wouldn't i wouldn't have gone home overwhelmingly pumped about today yeah but as now just like a duck hunter like just a straight up guy that loves duck hunting and loves telling the story of duck hunting i was freaking stoked about today yeah everyone was smiles when we left that's that's enough for me. My face hurts still. Smiling, <laughs> and it's what's crazy is um, what what I didn't 
I mean, I I saw it in the imagery, all the foul, all the water, all the reeds, the boats, and what I've heard is from a lot of people is like, um, that part of it sucks, and that's like the dirty part. But I think those are outside perspectives because when I mean I was warm the whole day, mm-hmm. but what was cool about the whole experience was it's a natural habitat that's very different. Then, yeah. you know, that, that bull elk that I bagged in Sawtooth in Idaho is a very different experience than waterfowl. Yeah. And it was beautiful. It was almost majestic, man. The snow was like falling in slow motion. Oh, it was gorgeous. The ice was breaking. The dog, seeing the dog mm-hmm. run around. The reeds. It was almost like the whole thing was a high dynamic range. It was just like this yeah. very saturated and beautiful thing. Um, and then what I noticed, and you had brought it up, was the rapport and the friendships and the conversations that you build in a duck blind are just so amazing. And and that's what attracted me to it because, man, I want to raise my babies. It's hard for me to take my kids. They're three. It's hard for me to take my kids on any hunts. But at the, at the age of four or five, I could potentially put them in a the blind with me and then be part of that process. Yep, totally. Yeah, that that is – Oh, there's so much awesomeness there. So one thing about the the beauty of the whole environment, right, is a swamp or, you know, let's talk specifically the Salt Lake, where we were today. Yeah. To a non-duck hunter, it's a stinky lake, mm-hmm. right? You can't go fish on it. Like you can't do any – it mm-hmm. serves no purpose to just another person living in Salt Lake. True. Yeah. But – And you hear people complain all the time about how it's a stinky bastard, right? Mm. But to a duck hunter, it's like one of the most beautiful places on earth. And it's because as a duck hunter, you have this different respect for what that marshy, you know, that, that, that sulfur smell of a marsh, right? Mm. That, that fermenting mud, that smell as a duck hunter means something different than a normal person because, you see the whole ecosystem. You see what that means for vegetation, what that means for food sources, what that means for migration. You know, we saw today a very important uh, body of water, one of the most important in the entire United States, and especially the Pacific Flyway. We saw a lake that serves really not that much purpose overall to you know, Utah or to, to a lot of the country as a whole, but to ducks and to what it does for migratory birds, it's like, you can't overstate how important it is. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and so, so yeah, the, like the beauty of that dynamic, right? The, the Phragmites and the, the reeds and the, the mud and the ice, those things independently, maybe not that beautiful, but when you see them in the context of being out duck hunting, they're just freaking cool it's epic and and then like you said the one of the things that's so different about duck hunting than most types of hunting is the social side of it that you get to be there with other people enjoying those moments rather than don't get me wrong i respect the hell out of archery whitetail hunters because Mm -hmm. they hang in that tree for 30 days chasing one buck you Mm -hmm. know and i grew up around that growing up in iowa but like that 
that's not a social experience. Yeah. You're on your own doing that. Mm-hmm. But today we're laughing, we're chatting, it's we're fun. telling stories. And and I maybe that's why I fell in love with it, like doing it with my dad and doing it with my grandpa and um, my uncle was like, I got to hear their stories as mm-hmm. a kid and the duck blind. And I wasn't going to hear those stories any other way of hunting, you know, wasn't going to hear those stories while we're whitetail hunting mm-hmm. or while we're pheasant hunting. You hear them waiting for ducks to fly in a blind. I, I, you know, I'm enthralled with conservation as a part of all elements of hunting. And I, I kind of, I would categorize myself as a hunter, I think in all aspects. You know, I, I grew mm-hmm. up as an angler, but my dad wasn't catching, releasing, fishing fish yeah yeah we were eating fish mm-hmm. and 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 a lot of it we were eating fish because he had to subsidize i think because the economics weren't working in his favor we just <laughs> yeah. weren't making a lot of money and so he's like man if i go fishing on friday we can catch catfish we could eat all weekend right you know save totally. some money and so we did a lot of that and and fishing's entry level cheap yeah it right? is like it especially absolutely. catfish fish it is we so i grew up on, on all that and then, you know, had a whole bunch of opportunities to hunt early on. And then, you know, the war got in the way. And then that career after me, now I'm all into it. And uh, conservation, especially for the waterfowl, is super important. And I don't think a lot of people understand. Like a lot of people are starting to get educated because of Ranella, because, you know, Joe Rogan's hunting now and he's talking yeah. about it uh, when it comes to elk, especially elk whitetail and big game but nobody I, I haven't heard anybody kind of contextualize like hey this is this is the reason waterfowl uh, hunting and conservation is so important and you know even from the, the stamp today like i was like what i gotta have a stamp oh it's yeah, an yeah. actual stamp and they yeah, got a sign five dollar stamp so but so weird and then oh what's my limit seven. Oh, i could do seven a day yeah but and there are certain things can you lay it out the education for why hunting birds, fowl, is so important. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, like very few groups of, of people in the conservation world can lay claim to a success story as much as duck hunters. I mean, duck hunters did so much for all conservation, especially waterfowl, of course. So ultimately what happened is late 1800s, you had market hunting in the United States. You were allowed to go kill bison, ducks, deer, bear, whatever, and sell it. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, that was a – boy. I mean, to, to think of, like, how much life got taken in such a short amount of time because that was a way for settlers and, and people settling the West – to make money, you know, that was the way as they marched across the United States for them to ultimately supplement themselves and, and make homestead as they traveled across this country. Mm. And, you know, that's the legends of Crockett and Boone and all that, that comes from market hunting. Right. Mm. And so going into the late 1800s, early 1900s, you have, um, you have market hunting of waterfowl, starts real like it goes from that it exists to leaps and bounds technologically advanced because they built what were called punt guns which were these giant they're cannons 
they're cannons they're shooting at ducks that shoot, you know, a pound, a pound and a half of shot of BBs wow. at a time. So scattering. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mass. Can you imagine if you were shooting at today's ducks? Oh, it took a whole flock. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so you had punt guns. And then on top of that, all of a sudden now pump shotguns as well um, developed and guys legally allowed to shoot pretty much as many as they want. There's no limitation. There's no limitation. And they can go, and all of a sudden now they can feed their family off of taking these ducks to the market and selling them, you know. And then you specifically had like kind of the the last thing that really was the nail in the coffin for most of North America's waterfowl at the time was the canvasback, which is the canvasback is a diver duck. It's a big, beautiful duck, as big as a mallard, if not bigger. Um, very regal, gorgeous duck, and at the, they were considered the best eating of like any bird. And so, canvasbacks were selling for what ended up being like hundred dollars a plate in New York and Chicago restaurants and London restaurants. They were getting shipped all over the world, out of the East Coast. And guys saw an opportunity to make a killing on them. And so they were just wiping out whole flocks. And you went from the canvas back being a very prevalent North American bird to, like, this thing's on the brink of extinction if we don't stop. Wow. And, you know, luckily there was not just market hunters, but there was also outdoorsmen. There was also people who hunted for, like, the sake of loving hunting, for sake of feeding just their family, right? And sportsmen kind of stood up and said enough is enough like we need rules and regulations around killing waterfowl we need and kind of the first thing to go was market hunting and then it went beyond that they're like okay we can't bait for waterfowl we can't uh you know you can only shoot three shots right is one of the rules i didn't Um, realize till this this morning where my gun my benelli wouldn't load a fourth round i was like I don't get it, understand why the gun would only have three. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're limited to three. Yep. Oh, okay, I get it now. Yep, you know? yep. And, and, and rules like that that kind of set in place a standard for the preservation of ducks and preservation of our waterfowl um, population in North America. And then the kind of last awesome step to that was the duck stamp, which the duck stamp – was a way to fund waterfowl-specific habitat where waterfowl hunters said, you know what, we need to fund waterfowl habitat and preserve waterfowl habitat as hunters if we want to continue to have ducks to hunt. Mm. And, I mean, it's been like one of the best conservation success stories ever. And a lot of the ground that gets bought with um, duck stamp dollars is in like the Dakotas – and kind of what we call the prairie pothole region, which is like the where most of the ducks nest, is the prairie, the Great Plains. Mm-hmm. And um, all kinds of wildlife benefit from it, right? Even fish. Um, like fish and, and deer and, and pheasants, you name it. Like so much wildlife benefit. And it's this tricky situation of, <laughs> man, like, I, I, you know, I know I face this dilemma in my own mind of like individual sovereignty and freedom to do with your land as you see fit combined also with like 
also our need to look into the future mm. and not be short-sighted and like just shoot all the ducks or all the bison or whatever, all yeah. the deer yeah. right now in this moment. Save it for our kids. Save, correct. Kids, kids. Yeah. And, and the, the, it sucks that the duck stamp kind of has to be a federal mandate in the way it is. It's too bad that all duck hunters just didn't see it as this voluntary thing they should do. Um, but it is a successful one, right? Like so it, that stamp that I signed today is federal. Is a federal mandate for a day of hunting? You have to have um, a stamp. Not a day, a season, every oh. year. Yeah, yeah. So, so that only costs twenty five bucks. Twenty five bucks, and and that, and you buy a new federal duck stamp every year. Yeah. Oh, so that's yeah, so yeah. awesome. That's kind of smart. It's really cool, it's like man. A, it's a tax stamp. It's a tax stamp. Yeah, yeah. But it all goes towards Yeah, it's what you pay. It's what you pay to get a silencer. Yeah. But it goes to duck habitat specifically. Duck nesting habitat. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah wow. It's a pretty cool story. And and golly, man. I mean, look how many ducks we saw today. And you can't help but wonder, like, the salt lake would have been ripe for punt gunning. Because it's this big, nice, open flat of water where you could shoot a bunch of ducks at once with this big punt gun. Like we you... leave no ducks for anybody else. We're going <laughs> to kill them all today. Right. Um, so I, when it comes to your experiences in hunting duck, I mean, you hunt, you've hunted all over the country. Yeah. And what, what I've recognized, which is very it, – it's, it's not like that, I don't think, with big game, is the process – like I have a belly right now full of duck. I'm cleaning it up with a, a nice wine, mm-hmm. and we went from this morning to going, "Hey, let's hunt." We did the whole thing, like all the shakeout of the kit. We did the putting out the blind, you know, talking through stuff, shooting duck, and coming back, processing the, the meal, and then eating it. Feed my family upstairs, mm-hmm. and it's like, man, I don't think there's anything else like it. Like I don't, I don't. Like if I go elk hunting, man, me that's a weak process for me. Yeah, yeah. Because totally. I'll get the deer, I'll get the elk. I want to process it. This last one I processed myself. And just going through that is a arduous process. And oh, by the way, it's not very communal. You know, it's like right. you could try to make it communal, but it's not. Like we could sit around and pluck feathers. We did upstairs and have conversations. You're talking the whole time talk. you're doing it. It's just, I don't know, It's there's something very unique about the process. It almost reminds me of my, the good times I had with my old man fishing. Mm-hmm. It's a great time, and and I love it, man. I, I had a great time. Um, when you look at all the places that you've been, what are some significant places in your mind that stand out as, whether it's states or locations, for, for duck hunting? Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Um it's all about what it is that you want to accomplish uh, with your duck hunting and, like, the method of how you want to duck hunt, right? So even, let's like, starting looking at just Salt Lake, you have how we hunted today out of a mud boat relatively close to our, the boat ramp, honestly. Like, not that much intense work or money involved. I mean, don't get me wrong, expensive boats, but... You could have even walked to where we hunted, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. On the contrary, there was also guys out on the main Salt Lake today hunting in $90,000 airboats that ran 10 miles from shore to mm-hmm. do so. And that's 
that's like a whole nother process and a whole nother experience than what we experience. So I think that's, that, that's part of like where is good and what kind of experience you're going for. Um, Salt Lake's one of the coolest places to duck hunt. It's a great place to duck hunt. You can have success relatively um, affordably here if you're willing to put in the work of walking your <laughs> walking your ass out a long ways. Yeah. Um, you know, other places that are awesome, Texas is one of the best dang states to duck hunt. Really? Um, oh, I'm getting yeah, excited now because yeah, I get a lot yeah. of time in Texas next year. Yeah, especially like coastal Texas. Um, yeah. Because all along the Gulf Coast, you have a bunch of you have a bunch of rice fields. You have mm-hmm. a bunch of national wildlife refuges that preserve the coast and preserve all that marsh habitat. Um, Texas is number two, I think, for most ducks harvested of any state. Wow. So yeah, Texas is a great place. Texas. To duck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, because a lot of ducks, kind of what we saw here, where you have ducks coming to the salt lake to kind of winter right yeah. they're they're going to spend as much time here this winter as they can mm-hmm. um but if as long as the lake stays open there will be ducks here right um texas is that for the central flyway so mm-hmm. the the country's split into four flyways pacific flyway which we're in here then um central flyway mississippi flyway and atlantic flyway and the central flyway funnels a lot of its ducks to coastal Texas is where they kind of go to spend their, their winter. And these are migration corridors. Yeah. 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 So it's important to always think about that. These ducks, while like right now they might, I'm sure they're banging them up in Texas right now. Um, there won't be a duck in sight six months from now. All those ducks in coastal Texas right now will be up in Saskatchewan, North Dakota, South Dakota come June. And that's where they'll nest, and then they'll fly back down, wow. and and so yeah, Texas is like awesome. Uh, you know, the hard part about Texas can be it's such a private land state; like yeah. it can be hard to freelance. But you just kind of got to go to the coast, mm-hmm. or you know, I tell people all the time, like you got to just be willing to knock on doors. You go drive around a bunch of Texas ranches and see a pond with fifty ducks on it. Chances are that rancher doesn't even know there's ducks on it. He's like, yeah, sure, go shoot them. You know, don't shoot the Neil guy. Don't shoot the hexes, dude. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's actually but, a really good point. But, but yeah, don't shoot the zebras. Like, go ahead, shoot the ducks. You know, I don't care. Like, what do you want to go hunting ducks for? Yeah. Um, you know, Arkansas is always considered, like, the mecca. Arkansas. Is that the Ozarks and the, the um, water? So the like the eastern part of Arkansas, so Little Rock to the east, um, it's called the Delta. Because uh, all the rice paddies. And stuff. All the rice. Yeah. yeah, all the rice, all the rivers that flood through there, the cash, the white, the black, um, pretty much the old floodplain in the Mississippi mm-hmm. through there is, I mean, and, and so – that's a good point of talking about what it is you want to accomplish, right? If you want to go to Arkansas, um, a lot of that's private land or very heavily pressured public land, right? There's so many people that go to duck hunt Arkansas every year, like mm. a lot of pressure. I was telling you earlier about, you know, there's duck clubs spending literally millions of dollars on diesel fuel 
just to fill those rice fields and timber to hunt ducks. Right. And so, uh, you know, you're not going to get to go hunt a spot like that, but then if you have a canoe and go to the rice lakes of Northern Minnesota in September or October, like chances are you're going to shoot some ducks and you can do it super cheap. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I think places like Arkansas and Texas, you know, Utah, um, honestly, Washington's phenomenal duck hunting, North Dakota, Minnesota. All over. Yeah, there's, Where there's rain and water and right. ponds. Yeah, if you can find if you can find water and agriculture in the same spot, you know, you're you're gonna start finding some ducks. Black Rifle Coffee Company set out on a mission to make the best cup of coffee that's ever hit your mug. The dream was to sell enough premium coffee to be able to build a support network of veterans, first responders, and law enforcement. Thanks to your support, all that dream has become a reality. Black Rifle Coffee is roasted by a veteran-led team of brilliant coffee graders here in the United States who work tirelessly to roast and bag the highest quality coffee right here in America. The coffee is truly one of a kind, but it's your support that gets the gear, funding, and supplies into the hands of those on our front lines. This year alone, your support has helped BRCC expand our team of active duty service members, veterans, and veteran family members. Black Rifle was also able to donate over 120,000 bags of coffee to veterans and first responders in 2022, all thanks to you. You can purchase at blackriflecoffee.com. You can also find Black Rifle Coffee in grocery and convenience stores near you. Black Rifle Coffee, America's coffee. For decades, buying a silencer has been difficult. But in 2005, Silencer Central set out to simplify the suppressor buying process. So what happens when you buy from Silencer Central? Well, they help you find the right silencer for you, they handle the paperwork so you don't have to, and they give you a free NFA gun trust so you can share your suppressor. Silencer Central allows you to pay while you wait. They make sure your purchase is carefully prepped, packaged, and protected until the moment you're approved. Once approved, they deliver it straight to your door. So whether you're planning your next hunt or putting together a range day, you'll enjoy every shot you take with Silencer Central straight to your front door. Let's talk about, let's, I want to walk people through the process here because um, I'm curious my own right mm-hmm. of understanding it because all I did, I mean, I had the the expertise of you, Dylan and Tanner. Yeah. Dylan and Tanner are local guys who um, allowed us to kind of, they knew the area, so they kind of forward observed the mm-hmm. different locations and they had their own equipment to make it easier for us. They totally. facilitate a lot of it. And uh, big shout out to Tanner and Dylan, great guys. When I got into this, it was like, go get a shotgun, go get a six dollar duck call. And that was really what I brought to the table. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole bunch of equipment and different things that you could do. Let's start off with the basics of um, how do you get a hunting tag or stamp or what is it called? A Federal duck stamp, yeah. Yeah, there's a what is that dip number? Oh, the, the hip, yeah, the yeah, hip yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the process of getting started uh, as far as the administrative side? For okay, you? fair. So, whatever state you're living in, you'll either have a dedicated small game license that covers waterfowl, or a dedicated like waterfowl license on your whatever state administration website you have, and then you'll, in addition to that waterfowl license in your state. 
You'll also need a federal duck stamp, which you can buy at any post office. It's crazy. Yeah. Never yeah it's an actual it's stamp actual at stamp. the post office. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So cool. It's just going to be a little more expensive than your normal yeah. stamp. Because <laughs> it's a stamp on a piece of paper or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it's 25 bucks instead of whatever stamps are nowadays. Yeah. 62 cents. Um, and then you have to have what's called the HIP. A lot of states um, – that's rolled in when you buy your waterfowl license on the website. But what the HIP is is a harvest information program, and it they pretty much ask you every year, like, did you hunt ducks last year? What have you? How many ducks did you shoot? Things like that. And um, HIP doesn't cost you anything usually, but uh, you have to have it. It's like a registered survey. Yeah, yeah. It's a registered data. survey that you got to have for waterfowl hunting. So that's pretty much it from the and, – and some states have a – in copying the federal duck stamp, some states have a dedicated state duck stamp as well mm. to fund duck habitat in their own state. Mm. Um, but, yeah, that, that covers the on waterfowl as far as the administrative side. As well as some specific regulations you have to know. You have to shoot steel shot and you can't shoot lead. Or let me rephrase that. You have to shoot non-toxic shot. So you have to shoot steel, bismuth, or tungsten. Yeah. Um, Those are all non-toxic. So you're not throwing lead into the water. Right, right. Because what was happening was waterfowl were eating lead and dying of lead poisoning. But also was the raptors. Right, mm-hmm. the the eagles and the hawks were dying from eating birds that had lead in them. Oh, because the eagles go eat the guts out of a duck and consume a bunch of lead, and then they uh. go to the next duck, eat a bunch of the guts, consume a bunch of lead. And yeah. yeah. So, um, you have to shoot non toxic shot, and your gun can only hold three shells in it. You have to have a, what's called a we call it a duck plug, but mm-hmm. um, you know, pretty much a plug that restricts how many shells your shotgun can hold and at that point i think that's pretty much everything you really need to know administratively what about okay so for for the waterways we we use onyx and you know for navigating and getting borders and boundaries Mm -hmm. there was a the name of the conservation area that we were hunting said something like w something or yeah yeah it was a waterfowl management area Yeah, yeah wma yeah i can't ever overstate how much every person should have onyx and not and not just hunters honestly like every person that wants to know where they stand at any given point whether you're on public or private you should have onyx because it shows the boundaries right shows all the boundaries and shows landowners and um even like hikers right like I, I feel like even just people that go hiking should have onyx because yeah. they at least know if they're on national forest ground or whatever they're yeah they're standing on. Um, and do you look? What's the tactic there for like if you go on onyx and then you're trying to find different spots? Are you looking for the WMA or whatever? Right. So how I always kind of treat onyx is I'm looking for. I'm either looking for really sh- – I'm looking at satellite imagery first, right? I'm looking for shallow water or I'm looking at, for water next to agriculture. Um, so if I see like shallow marshy looking stuff, naturally probably going to be some ducks hanging around there. And then um, water near agriculture, ducks and geese will roost on water 
and then fly into cornfields, bean fields, wheat fields to eat. So if I find either of those options a place, it's already like now it's on my hit list of places I'm interested in. And then there it becomes looking for public land, right? That public land might be BLM or it might be state park in some states. It might be, you know, it can be anything. But if it shows that it's public and it kind of like meets the requirements for what I picture as ducky habitat, yeah, um, then I'm going to go drive and check so, it out. But it's not like a deer tag where you have to shoot in specific area or right. zone. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, most of the time, um, most of the time you're not shooting a specific zone unless, yeah, that's a good point. Um there are some states, let's say Missouri, for example, where there's a north zone and a south zone in Missouri. So the season dates are just a little different depending on where you're at in Missouri mm-hmm. because northern Missouri freezes up earlier than southern Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I think there's a north, central, south in Missouri, but whatever. Uh, so it is important to notice on there like what zone you're in when you're hunting and what those dates of the year are make sure you're in legal hunting season but um it's all state to state too right right, right. Yeah, what is what is the average um hunting season for duck in america so it goes by flyway that comes back to the same four flyways we're talking about oh yeah, yeah yeah um atlantic flyway i think is right now at a 60 day season might be 45 mississippi flyway 60 days uh central flyway is 74 days and then Western Central Flyway is like 90 days. And then Pacific Flyway, I think, is a 108-day wow. waterfowl season. Yeah, wow. in Salt Lake, you can hunt ducks a long time. Yeah. You can hunt. Into February, right? Until uh, j- January, like late January. Late January. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So you can hunt ducks a long time in the West Coast. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So you, so if you're looking to get set up for uh, hunting waterfowl strategically – you know, fill in the freezer, you can set it up to where you could extend your season by going to different states and flyways. Yeah. Flyways, yeah, yeah. Even like, yeah, that's great. What point in North Dakota or and South Dakota, uh, duck season starts like September 27th, 28th, hmm. the last Saturday of September every year. And then ends by first week of December. But, you know, Arkansas, their duck season doesn't even open till Thanksgiving and then runs till January 31st. Oh, wow. So that's how I spend so much time waterfowl hunting is because I can actually go hunt August Canada geese. I can hunt Canada geese in August in South Dakota or North Dakota, um, start hunting ducks in September, and then hunt all the way till end of January, and then start hunting snow geese in February and hunt those till end of April. Mm. By following states. So I can hunt waterfowl for nine months of the 12 months. Wow. If by being strategic with like state and species. Wow. Yeah. Well, let's talk about um, gear specific stuff. Like when I went to go get a shotgun, I think I texted you and was like, hey, I'm going to get a Benelli Mm -hmm. or whatever. Uh, I went into the the store, you know, I went to Sportsman's Warehouse and said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm getting into local hunting, and they're like, you know, what's the best shotgun? They're like, well, this Benelli is about top of the line. Mm-hmm. Um, what shotgun are the specs 
And then what is what do you recommend as far as the best shotgun that you mm, use? Yeah. Um so twelve gauge, like just just do it. Just buy a twelve gauge, especially with how hard it is to get ammo these days in like off calibers. Like the guys I know that shoot a twenty gauge right now are having a hard time getting mm-hmm. shells. So right. just buy a twelve gauge. Um it needs to shoot three inch shells at the bare minimum. I always, personally, I always shoot, not always, but most of the time I shoot a three-inch shell with number two shot steel, and that will cover you most of the time on geese and ducks. You really don't have to shoot much else. So the three inches is the... The length of the, the shell. The length of the shell. Yeah, in the chamber of the shotgun. Yeah. Yep, and then the shot is sized based off of a number, right? Yeah, yeah, number and letters. So the higher the number the smaller the BB. So number eight shot is really tiny pellets. Number one shot is bigger pellets. And then it turns to letters after that. BB, BBB, and then you get into like FT and buckshot is like how it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. Um, BB and BBB, you would shoot for Canada geese. You would never shoot that really at ducks. Um, but yeah, so... As far as, so that's kind of what shotgun I'd say. Just get yourself 12-gauge, 3-inch shotgun. Mm-hmm. Um, brands, you can't go wrong with Benelli and Beretta. I mean, those two are, they're mentioned all the time for a reason. They're yeah. great shotguns. Yeah. And um, Franke and Stoger are great. And honestly, the shotgun I was shooting today is a Weatherby. And it's pretty much internally... It's an inertia system. It's internally pretty much a Benelli M2 at a discount. I mean, it's it's a great shotgun, and I've liked shooting that shotgun. So, um, you know, one other shotgun that's really a, a great shotgun is the Winchester SX4. Is a good shotgun. Yeah, that'd be kind of my list of like, if you go, but if you go with a Benelli or Beretta, and budget's not a problem. Great shotguns. Um, the Beretta A400's fantastic. And then if you're on a budget, you know, look at the Weatherby, the Franke, and the Stoger. Mm. Talk, talk to me about the barrel length and then the this choke system. Like yeah, I, yeah. I am new. Like the guy, the guy was straight up at Sportsman's. Is like great guy, by the way. Is Sportsman's mm-hmm. up in Provo, uh, which is a great uh, place to like get education from guys because most of the guys hunt. And he opens up this case and he goes, listen, Benelli, which is an Italian company, they're a little different on their chokes and systems. And he walks me through all these different chokes. I'm like, dude, I have what you just told me. You just told me and I forgot everything you just said because <laughs> right. it's so foreign, foreign to language. Me. It's yeah. foreign. Yeah, a little different than talking uh, suppressors. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's completely – It's. I had a hard time today. Like, I know you guys – I mean the camera caught it mostly. But just there's a whole bunch of different things like – the gate closes because it doesn't want you to – what is it called? Float a fourth. Yeah, you don't want to float a fourth round. Yeah, it doesn't want you to be able to sneak a fourth round. Yeah. So they've got a locking mechanism. Yeah. So yeah. then you have to do like some series of clicks off of – so it's not like a Benelli M4 or M1 right. that I'm used to, to using. Um, so it was, it, it was uh, pretty difficult. But even when I showed up with the choke today – I had no idea if that was the right choke. 
Yeah. And thank God it just was because I didn't bring the box that was in the case yeah. when I bought the gun. What what are the different chokes and what does that even what does that mean? Okay, so choking is the tightening down of the the wad and the pellets as they leave the barrel. Mm-hmm. So like a tighter group tighter pattern. Group, yeah. Correct. Yep. So it's it's tightening or loosening that pattern. Um kind of an increment from widest pattern, biggest pattern to tightest pattern, you would have like a skeet choke, a skeet choke, then you would have improved cylinder, um, then modified, then full, and then extra full. And uh, ultimately what you're doing, right, is it's kind of up to the shooter and also there's a big conversation to be had around that, around efficacy and your ability to efficiently kill. Mm. Um, an improved cylinder, you're throwing a wide, you're throwing a very wide pattern, but there's going to be gaps in that pattern, right? Because there's no more BBs. So if you're throwing 144 pellets at a real wide pattern, um, that they're you might only hit the duck with one pellet if he's pretty far. You know, if he's real close, sure, it's it's going to be tighter, right? Because that, that thing's a cone as it leaves that yeah. shotgun. Yeah. Um, versus if you're taking pretty far shots, let's say 40-yard shots, you're going to want a real tight pattern when it leaves your barrel because ultimately it needs to be, you know, still a pretty tight grouping by the time it finally gets to that duck. So, and then uh, last part of that is... You know, an inexperienced shooter, someone that's not shooting a lot of shotgun and not shooting a lot of birds, might need the handicap of that wider pattern mm-hmm. to just make sure they hit something. Mm-hmm. And someone with a lot more experience um, that you know aim small, miss small, right? Mm-hmm. They're gonna shoot a they're gonna shoot a tighter choke because they know they're the they're capable of doing that. Yeah, and yeah. Um, you know, I think that. Like, personally, I try to shoot a really tight choke because um, I don't want to wound birds. And if I just, you know, I, I wounded and lost one today. And mm-hmm. it freaking pissed me off because I shouldn't have even shot at that bird. I I knew he was kind of sneaking out the back door on me. And it was, it was. That's uh, the one you went and tried to find. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And. Um, you know, a, a tight pattern usually can help me out in that situation where even if I make a bad decision, I got enough pellets on target that that bird falls dead or wounded enough to where the dog's going to get it. Um, and I, I, I think that, you know, here, here's an interesting stat. The, the estimates are anywhere from 15 to 40% of their uh, more wound loss mortality a year in waterfowl. So if the country shoots 10 million ducks a year as a hunting populace, if we kill 10 million ducks a year, anywhere from 1.5 million to 4 million ducks are going wounded and dying in the weeds every year. Mm. And I think a it's, big, a lot, yeah. it's a lot. And I think part of that is because you get one or two BBs in it instead of seven, right? You get mm. one BB in the guts, 
that doesn't drop it right there, but then he flies out to the lake and dies. Yeah. And so it's a waste. It's a waste. Yeah. So I, I, I always try to tell people that they should try to shoot a tighter choke just to, you know, make sure you either miss or you kill it clean. Right. Yeah. I, uh, it's interesting. Um, I, I didn't realize it until we were cleaning the duck and I've had this with pheasant and other types of animal. And I, I, I kind of comprehend this, but seeing it in real time, both in the hunt and then post when we're processing the animal, when when you hit it, it has to be a certain set distance. Because if you hit it too close, you'll decimate that bird. <laughs> if you hit it too far, you'll wound the bird, right? Right. So it's like whatever that choke is and putting that range at, there's an optimal zone yeah. where you can hit it. Yep. And I kind of – you did a really good job at helping me get dialed into that zone because I started calibrating like you're like no no that's too far and I was like okay that's like 50 plus yards and you're like oh hit him now and then I was hitting him I remember I hit one real close yeah, and, you did. and it was like boosh <laughs> yeah, and I was like oh wow everywhere. okay and then there's like it was like a 30 to 40 yard range that was like kind of a perfect like little window mm-hmm. right yeah yeah and that range was likely the majority that we hit that only had like one to two BBs in them. Yeah. And and it helped us process them better. But, yep. it, but it was an ethical kill. Right. Even some of the ones that were where you're like, ooh, it hit, it's not completely dead, it it, it died fast. Like it wasn't right. it wasn't it wasn't yep. bad. Have you have you found that optimal window based on the chokes and the experience? Like how how have you dialed that in? Yeah. Well, and that's part of the reason we have decoys, right? It's like we're we're running oh, air traffic control for yeah. trying to like you saw where I had the spinners? Yeah. Right? Like the spinners is that distance for how we were choked of like if those ducks are trying to land with the spinning wing decoys, which uh, for people that aren't familiar, spinning wing decoy is a duck on a pole with exactly what it sounds like, rotating wings that looks like a duck landing. Um, so I have those kind of set where I see as our optimal distance. If a teal is trying to land with those spinning wing decoys, I see that teal as like the perfect killing distance, uh, um, which was about 30 yards, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 25 to 30, you know, depending kind of on those spinners. And so that is for how we were choked, right? We were choked pretty tight. Um, I see that as like that was our that was our kind of money zone of, yeah. of effective killing. Mm. Um but yeah, it's all about how you choke. You know, if a guy's shooting a improved cylinder with a twenty gauge, you know, small bore shotgun, uh, he wants them at ten yards. You know, he wants them right in his face. Yeah. Like a pheasant, guy right. Know. A guy shooting a ten gauge with you know, the two ounces of shot and a mm. full choke, man. He's smoking them at fifty. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a balance there. Yeah, there's but a twelve balance. gauge is the recommendation. From yeah, you. twelve gauge for sure. And you know, and and then like if you're shooting a modified choke, you know, a modified to a full, um, you want those birds at twenty five, thirty yards, and you should be killing them consistently. Like okay. that should be kind of a sweet zone to be in. Let's talk. Let's talk um, before we go into like your recommendation recommendation for like the kit list. Let's talk about gear because I noticed you had. I mean, this is like cherry day one, right? Which I'm not afraid to admit. Like this is the reason why I brought Sean in because he's the expert. But I show up and I'm in like sick uh, elk backcountry hunting mm-hmm. 
stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I got muck boots on, and everybody's in waders, and I'm like, and I got waders for fly fishing, but I'm like, oh man. Like, yeah, I didn't even I, think about telling you. It was like, yeah. just like one of those things that slips the mind, you know? I didn't, I didn't even think about it. Then, boy, it makes sense. I'm like, oh my god, why didn't I think? It's waders. You got to have waders on. Yeah. Can you walk me from like I don't know, head to toe, and the basics of what you should have, and mm. then and then what you actually use. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, first off, good pair of wool socks, because <laughs> yeah. when you're standing in that cold water and cold mud, like yeah. you gotta have some good wool socks on. Um, waders. Uh, the the ones that I was wearing today aren't out yet. The world knows about them. They're the first light waders. Um, those will be out next year. Those are sexy. Yeah, those are awesome. waders. Yeah, yep. yep. the the first light waders are really sweet. The honestly, Sims waders are great. Sika waders are great. Got Sims um, there, you know, there's a lot of good waders on the market now. And if you're balling on a budget, you know, good cheap pair of neoprenes from do, the they, farm store. Do they have to be? Like, I got fly fishing waders. Can I use those? For yeah, nothing? yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah, the the hard part with fly fishing, you can totally pull it off. I I did for a lot of years. Um. The hard part just gets to be your foot management, like keeping your feet warm in fly fishing waders because you're doing that water right up to that stocking foot. Yeah. It can be cold because there's no air gap between your foot, right, and that, that cold water. You're not creating that warm air bubble around the foot mm. versus with a boot foot like I was wearing, a heavily insulated boot foot. Um you know, my feet were totally warm. Which is designed for foul. Designed for foul. Okay. Yeah. And um, as a, like, under my waiter, those waiters are an uninsulated, they're insulated boot, uninsulated rest of you. Uh, I'm wearing, like, a wool base layer, uh, long johns, and then a wool pant, and then, like, a tough pant like this, just a thin, uninsulated pant. Um, then moving up from there, I was wearing wool next to skin like a light wool and then i was wearing a heavy merino wool base layer next um i was wearing first light stuff but there's a lot of great stuff out there i mean i like the first light stuff sika makes great stuff i wore sika for years um ducksworth makes great stuff i mean there's really a lot of good apparel companies in all budget ranges in all budget ranges nowadays um and then past that merino, thick merino layer, I was wearing, um, some, honestly, the same thing as this vest, but in a jacket form. It's a Berber fleece with, like, a almost Carhartt material on the outside. Yeah. Um, and I got a little hot in that. It was a little too much. Because your waders go above, like, suspenders. Yeah, waders come up to, you know, bottom of my arm. Wow. So I was a little clammy in that today it was yeah. a little too much we're pretty active yeah um but yeah so so that's kind of like you, what you really need is you need dang good pair of socks waders and then um i i just really do think like wool is the best for waterfowling because you stay warm when you're wet with wool and then uh you know try to avoid cotton Cotton kills. Cotton, yeah. Cotton's rough, man, especially when you're wet all the time waterfowling. And then, uh, you know, some spinning wing decoys and 
a, a lanyard with what you saw on my lanyard was duck call, gut goose call, a duck whistle, and then a remote control that controlled my spinning wing decoys. And that that covers you pretty intensely. So let's talk like like let's talk decoys because yeah. when I went to sportsman's um they had a whole bunch of boxes of decoys. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I assume the box or the type of decoy you get depends on the water that you're in or are they universal? Because like we put out mm, we point. put out the the geese one and I was like Oh, are we trying to track geese or are we just trying to track birds? Like, Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so um, goose decoys are good attracting of ducks like uh, just because they're high visibility. right? Uh, those things are black and white. Yeah. And so from a long ways off, those ducks can kind of see those goose decoys. But um, th- they're meant more for visibility, right? And so – I use actually a lot of goose decoys myself when I'm duck hunting, even though I'm hunting ducks. Yeah. Now, I do set out duck decoys like we did today as well. Um, as far as when you buy the decoys, what you're buying is price and realism, right? So at the top end of realism, but also expensive, you have a brand like Dakota Decoy, which is what I use, and they're the most realistic money can buy, but also pretty expensive. Yeah. But they're great. Yeah. And they've got a lot of technology wrapped up in those decoys, like super lightweight plastic that, so when you have to walk in a long ways, um, you're not carrying so much weight. Yeah. Then on the bottom end, you have um, what are called like the green green head gear hot buys, which are like the cheapest decoy made. They're Mm -hmm. very cheap. They still look like a duck. They're just, uh, you know, might not be as durable. They might not be as realistic. And so when you're buying decoys, you're buying in that range, right, of, like, how much you care about realism versus price. is You're finding the equilibrium there. And then um, you're buying by species too, right? Now, generally, you don't have to, like, have – the decoys that match the species you're hunting, but you might buy, this is a good thing to talk about. You notice we had those decoys behind us today. Yeah. And they were very black and white. Yeah. Those are bluebill decoys. Those are diver decoys. So we are buying a diver duck decoy like that, which are, that was a bluebill. We're buying those with the intention of that they are a high-vis decoy that's going to attract divers. Because divers, how their vision works is, Divers actually, like, are looking for specifically black, white, and red when they decoy. So we had diver decoys out specifically for the purpose of if divers came by. Uh-huh. Um, but then out in front of us, we had puddle duck decoys. So we had shovelers, widgeon, and teal, which are, you know, not necessarily as high vis. A little, lot more browns in those decoys, like brown colors. And um, they hang out in super shallow water like we were hunting. So... Those those decoys made sense in front of us because that's what we we're targeting. And then geese offset. And then geese kind of offset more just for visibility and attraction than actually from a like, longer distance. Right. Yep. Because what's what's the ultimate objective for decoys as you put them out in front of you? I, I like how you lined out like you're getting them in distance to the blind mm-hmm. to be able to shoot and engage. But what's the overall objective for having them out? Yeah, that's a good point. We're trying to get them to land in front of us, and we want to use how birds sit in nature to 
mimic that and direct them accordingly. So um, those geese kind of were set on land, right? Because geese would have been standing on land today, like where in that spot. And, the, and those were a standing goose silhouette. Mm. So that, that kind of made sense for them to be over there standing on like what looks like solid ground. And then how the decoys are arranged, you know, depending on the day and the hunt, ultimately what we're picturing is that other ducks see them and want to come land with them because they're seeing that there's either food there or a resting place or just safety in numbers. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and that kind of always shifts by what habitat you're hunting, if it's cold or warm. Now, early in the season, your duck decoys might be really loose and scattered and not very many of them because it's nice out. And then late in the winter, birds huddle together real tight to stay warm. Mm. So your decoys might be all packed real tight together and almost a ball of massive decoys. So, um, but yeah, that's that's the goal, right, is mimic whatever they would be looking like in nature and ultimately convince them that we are a real spread of decoys, or of ducks. Yeah, and then you want to bring them in to land so you have shooting options of on the infill when they're landing, when they land and they're, like, sitting, mm-hmm. or when they're taking off, right? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a funny thing that um, duck hunters take as, <laughs> duck hunters take as, like, um, like just known is oh you just shoot them as they're decoying but like as they're coming in but to non-duck hunters it would make sense well just let them all land first then start shooting them yeah and it makes no sense that we shoot them when they're in there yeah rather than letting them land like i i can't because they bail right so hardcore (laughs) which surprised me i was like Holy crap! These guys are like Acrobats, mavericks man. of yeah. like the top guns of the bird, <laughs> yeah, and they're just. They are. It, it literally, you could see some of them dodge the pellets as oh, they were coming. They're dipping like because they're like, oh god, and they're and they're so smart and intelligent. It's almost like they see it as a predator, fast. and they're moving around the pellets. Yeah, it's 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 pretty intense how fast they are and how quick those little teal maneuver man i mean you saw it when they would bunch up behind us to come yeah. over us all of a sudden they go oh yeah they're flipping you know as they come so by. crazy they're they're a little so beautiful though yeah. so awesome the, but um but when yeah, they land <laughs> well it's easy yeah it's way easier when they land so it makes no sense that we don't just let them land more but for some reason it's always been seen as like the sporty thing right? yeah yeah I, I, it doesn't yeah. I can't rationalize it. Like, yeah, I, can't, I see that. I can't yeah. give it reason or logic, but it's just like just what you. Yeah, it's like done. shooting big game when they're bedded. It never feels right. To me. Right. It's like right. I or or like there's somebody bedded, and then a hunter will call them just to get them to stand, to stand up, and then that's why. Yeah, yeah. and it like <laughs> logically and rationally might not make that much sense. Yeah. But, um, it's where you like. It's that's what you do. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, let's talk about the blind because. Mm-hmm. I was so, you know, man, the blind, the whole blind thing I'd seen and I'd seen people set up like the tents and, you know, watching Duck Dynasty and them doing mm-hmm. the stuff. But it was super interesting to see the blind that we set up because we set that blind and then used natural foliage and camouflage to conceal ourselves and 
it was super cool. I was I didn't even realize that was a thing because we use it nearly like we're using jute to tie in, and and how we built that was based on like the terrain, mm-hmm. and it was such a cool process. And I didn't even realize that's how how it worked. I thought we were gonna pop a tent, but that whole thing was really cool. Uh, I'm interested to understand, or for more for other people who are trying to understand, when you set up that, what are you trying to mask? Like, uh, what are the specs and what is the natural advantages that a duck has over any other game? Mm, eyes, yeah, you know their senses. What what is it? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, ducks have incredible vision, mm. like unbelievable vision. Um, they're not smelling anything, really. No, right? no, yeah. no, no. Yeah, they're they're using their eyesight, and you have to. I mean, just think about this, and this puts some context. Those ducks are flying how fast by us, but they all of a sudden see that spinning wing decoy and turn on a dime. Yeah, I mean, their vision's really good yeah. to be able to see that way out. They do way that. out there, and so yeah, their their vision's incredible. They see red, green, blue spectrum. They also see ultraviolet spectrum. Uh, you know, which we don't see. So they're seeing shades of colors we that don't we don't see. even know our colors. Wow. Right? Yeah. <laughs> which is interesting. Like, they're seeing wavelengths that we don't even know how to recognize. Yeah. And then on top of that, they have what's called this corneal streak in their eye, which gives them sharper vision in a portion of their eye. And then they also have um, – they're bad with depth perception, but they have almost like a wide-angle lens view – because they can see, it's like 300 degrees of their vision. Yeah. So um, it forces things that are even kind of far to look very close. So it's almost like having a zoom lens mm. on top of increased sharpness, on top of increased color. Mm. Like they just have phenomenal vision. Um, I actually wrote a really cool article about duck vision called The Truth About Duck Vision, if anyone wants to go look it up. and Where's that at? Meteor website. Mediator.com? Yeah, themediator.com. Yep. Themediator.com. Okay. Yep. And then, um, so, so uh, the, the thing that you're trying to do with the blind is reduce anything that looks unnatural because they pick those things out. From right? the sky. So, right. From the sky. So even like, yeah, our camo helps us some, but with an elk, it helps a ton, mm-hmm. right? But with with ducks, it's like no, they see, they see that blob there. They see colors that we're not seeing, right? The camo helps a little, but ultimately, like, they still know you're standing there. Versus, if you're completely covered in a gilly of natural camouflage that matches your surroundings perfectly, then they just can't possibly know you're there. Oh, no. And so that's what you're really going for. You know what I like? What when I'm Today was kind of a haphazard blind, honestly. If if I had all the time in the world today, what we would have done is really dissected that whole brush pile, and we would have been engulfed in trees and brush so much that like we would hardly be able to see the ducks decoying. And then we would have grass sprinkled through. We would even have branches coming up over our back to mm-hmm. cover us from behind so they can't see the back of our head as we turn and look. I mean, you would you would really go that far because it it can come to that. You know, when we're hunting geese or snow geese, we actually hide in pit blinds under the ground because they have such good vision. Mm-hmm. Like you're you are in a 6-foot deep hole 
looking through a tiny little slit two inches to hunt them because otherwise they're going to see you. Wow. Yeah. They yeah, it, incredible. It, that was super fun. That that whole process was fun. Yeah, it's like building forts. Yeah, it like, was like it was kid, fun. You know? It was fun. <laughs> um, w- let's talk about um, re- we're closing out on an hour already, but let's talk about um, the retrieving aspect because you had your dog, and I, I one you know Black Rifle Coffee just released a documentary recently of a dog saving my life in Iraq who mm. bit a suicide bomber. You guys could see that on Black Rifle Coffee's uh, main YouTube channel. And I'm a big fan of dogs. Your dog, she was retrieving, and then the things that she was retrieving, I was like, if we didn't have her, we'd have to go out and get that? Yeah. And so I'm like, is a dog like a necessity here? That's a good point. Uh, I hunted for a long time without a dog, and it was always a pain in my butt. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's a balance of life. And dog ownership. Like, yeah. I traveled so much. As a TV producer, I was traveling 200 days, 220 days a year um, all over the world. So yeah. I just really didn't have the like the capacity to own a dog at mm-hmm. that time. That, that was and, – and also didn't have the time to train that dog properly. Yeah. Versus, you know, now I kind of have the time. Uh, I had the time to train her this year and spent so much time with her. You know, I spent, I, I'd sp- say I spent 10 hours a week dedicated training her oh. all summer long. She was great. Uh, yeah, she did a good job. I was proud of her today. It made she did me happy. Awesome. Yeah. So, so dog's not a necessity, but it is a wonderful luxury. It's yeah. great to have a dog. Some of them we dropped, I was like, ooh, that'd be complicated. And, and then even as we were shooting some of them, because there was so much going on, it was kind of hard hard to track where certain birds were. Mm-hmm. And if it was just you, the guys trying to track the birds, I mean, I could imagine some of those birds would get lost. Because, yeah, but she had yeah. her nose, right? Yeah, she, she was the finding ability them. to smell them. It was yeah. crazy. And, and, and I'm assuming there's a process and there's a breed, specific breed that you want to go after mm-hmm. as far as like the, the, the breeder. Yeah, is there yeah, a lo- yeah. Like, what is it, what's the history of your dog? She, she's a British lab from Southern Oak Kennels, which is like to me one of the premier Southern or t- premier British lab kennels. Um, Southern kennels. Southern Oak Kennels. Southern yeah, Oak they're kennels. they're they're phenomenal. Okay. Uh, she's she's great dog. They they have great dogs. I've filmed and hunted over shit, man, thirty some of their dogs now, and I've loved watching all of them. Uh, but there's a lot of good breeders, you know. You do kind of get what you pay for. If you go get a $250 lab off the street, you might just get a house dog. Yeah, um, yeah. You go get something from a proven, reputable hunting, breeding kennel, you're going to probably get a dog with a lot of good instinct like she has. Um, but, you know, typically, like, just look for a, a kennel that advertises themselves as that they're breeding hunting labs, not not lap dogs. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a difference yeah. between yeah. a show lab and a and a dog really bred for its hunting prowess. But yeah, um, labs, Chesapeake Bay retrievers, you know, some golden retrievers, um, kind of as duck dogs. Like that's the breeds. Mm. Yeah, that's the breeds. What's your favorite? Let's let's close out with uh, what's your favorite duck call, and what's your favorite way to prepare and cook duck? Because mm. I know we. We did a couple different things today, but what what is your favorite call? Yeah. 
Um, as far as a call goes, there's a lot of phenomenal ones out there, like so many. Uh, just to list off some of like my favorite brands, and then I'll say my specific one. RNT Duck Calls, great. Duck Lander, Pacific Calls. Uh, there's a new Phelps Duck Call that's coming out that's going to be great. Um, there, there's a lot of great Duck Calls out there. Those are just a few. Um, RNT is kind of the name in the game, has been for a long time. Rich in tone calls. And uh, you can't go wrong with the RNT short barrel. It's a great duck call. And you can't go wrong with uh, the the Pacific calls um, ace or deuces. Those are b- both great duck calls. And then um, as far as my favorite way to prepare duck, I just really encourage people to take the time to pluck some ducks and pluck that, pluck the feathers off the breast to leave the skin on, you know. Which leaves the fat on the meat, right? Leaves the fat on the meat, you know. Otherwise, it's super lean meat. There's no fat in the meat. Yeah. The fat's on the outside in the skin. Um, And, you know, think about eating a rotisserie chicken and what that flavor is like versus eating... A chicken breast. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's a good analogy. You know, like, and that's the difference you're getting with duck is the duck breast is like your chicken breast, but man, that rotisserie duck would be freaking phenomenal if Mm. all that skin is still there and all that fat. And these ducks have so much fat. You know, you saw some of those we cooked up tonight. They're half inch of fat on them. It was great with the fat. Great with the fat on. Made a big difference. So I encourage you to pluck at least the breast. Just pluck the breast and you'll see the value in plucking. And then sear it skin side down in a pan. Uh, get that skin nice and crispy. Salt and pepper the heck out of it. Then flip it over to, to finish it. Or you can finish it in the oven. And then if you're feeling real adventurous, uh, save that duck fat for duck fat potatoes, which we also did tonight. Which is Those duck fat potatoes were amazing. Mm, I... I, I I crushed everybody's. Like I started eating everybody's, <laughs> digging out of the pan. Uh, we sent the, uh, my media guy, John, home with some. Um, yeah. Let's talk about uh, your stuff because um, you, you're thinking about or you're committed to starting a podcast. Yeah, I'm going to start a podcast. Don't have a name for it yet, but I'm starting one. It'll be a waterfowl, like more oriented podcast. I won't just talk waterfowl, but that'll be what I, I want to talk to a lot of waterfowlers i'm excited about that man because i've actually when you were on meat eater stuff those were the referenceable referenceable things that i could find on waterfowl but there's not a lot out there no there's really not and and i've i've seen that myself that like uh a lot of the questions i get on you know social media or email or whatever else like they're really basic questions a lot of the time and it it does seem like there's room for a a comprehensive source on waterfowl stuff and so um yeah soon soon i'll be doing a waterfowl podcast and i'm gonna find somewhere just as a home for all things waterfowl you know i want to i want to have somewhere that's a real dedicated home for every bit of education you can have 101 level you know here's how to (laughs) Here's how to put decoy weights on decoys and set them in the water. And then 
uh, get all the way 404 level and, and dissect drone photos of decoy spreads that, you know, that's something I really want to do is have people send in photos of their decoy spreads oh, and, wow. and I'll dissect what I would do different, what I like about their spread, what I don't, and, and get real detailed around, like, you know, luckily for me, now we we're just talking about uh, 20 years of knowledge waterfowling, which uh, is a lot. Doing it a lot. Yeah, so especially with as much passion as you have, man. I've never seen so many. I mean, I've seen a lot of passionate hunters, but nobody in the waterfowl world that's as passionate as you are. Um, we're doing Phil Grass Survival. My company is doing a, a potential migration off of locals into our own app, which should potentially be a a landing site. So think about us potentially because yeah. it could be a landing site for a lot of your content. I like the idea of long-form educational content on things like this where there is no optimal window. It's like you're teaching to a standard, not to a time hack. Mm. And so it's like we're training to a standard here, guys. So if the standard takes six hours because we're going through something very detailed and you could virtually learn that and then ask the questions and do the thing, that that's the platform we're designing right now. That's cool. And it'd be really cool to have you on board. And I know we just filmed a cooking video with you. Yeah. That's a pretty long form, so at a minimum, we'll have some of that stuff. Um, where can people go to find you right now in the current platforms that you have? Yeah, in the moment, uh, just go check me out on Instagram for the time being. Sean Weaver, D-W-C, Sean spelled S-E-A-N. So that's S-E-A-N-W-E-A-V-E-R-W-D-W-C. Um, Sean spelled the Irish way. Yeah. yeah, I like this. If the, if the red beard didn't give it away. Yeah, I know. I got some of that too. I got a little bit of that in me as well. Um, uh, Sean, I want to say thank you, man, for coming on the podcast. It was a ton of fun. It's the, rad, This man. whole day was a freaking blast, man. We we piled a lot of stuff into a day. We did. Day. And it's like that's the kind of day that you want because I feel like that's the kind of day that you feel like you earned it. Yeah. And we hit the rack tonight. It's like, oh, man, what, what great memories, man. And mm-hmm. It was a pleasure, man. It was amazing. I can amazing. feel my contacts drying out, which means it was a good day. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's great. I'm ready for bed. It was a good, good time, man. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Well, one last thing is we got to get you, um, like, on how I – let's get you out in South Dakota or something next fall. It'd be yes. Fun. Yeah. I'm, I'm already programming the calendar right now. <laughs> cool. I'm all about yeah, it, man. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks, Sean. Yeah. Hey guys, uh, make sure you check out Sean's links down below. All the stuff that Sean's doing. Check out his Instagram because once that podcast drops, I want you guys to know about it. Um, I also I want to say all you waterfowlers or people who are in the waterfowling community, make sure you guys leave your comments and feedback below because that's what this is all about. It's like these are the positive things that we can concentrate our efforts on and come together, share that education, share that information subscribe, hit the notification tab, all that good stuff. I appreciate you guys. Until next time. Thanks, guys. That concludes today's training. Any questions? Woo! Jump titties, boy!